you are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, including our gathering times at Fishers, Eagle Creek, Noblesville, Pendleton, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Micah Beckwith. Well, good morning, Life Church. How are you doing this morning? It's good, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pastor Micah and Noblesville Campus Pastor. And if you're new here, we just want to say thank you for coming and worshiping with us in the house of the Lord today. And uh, uh, Life Church has multiple campuses, so we're one church, multiple locations. And, and uh, it's, always, it's always fun to see what God is doing uh, within just the whole Life Church community. The last week was a pretty uh, awesome week. We had first Wednesday on Wednesday night. If you were there, it was over at the Fishers campus. Those are, those are really uh, powerful moments. I would encourage you, if you've never come to first Wednesday, it's, uh, to give it a chance, check it out. It's a worship experience that just kind of, it's an hour and a half. We just get to sing and to just, we have people like, you know, Darren back there and, and uh, Candace, they, they, they paint. They're just doing prophetic painting. I know Susie and Shannon and a bunch of other people are painting as well. And, and, uh, and so you, you see kind of like what the Lord is speaking through them while, while worship is going on and painting is going on. And then there's prayer happening. It's just kind of Sunday morning, you know, times times 10. You know what I mean? We just get to do it a little bit more and, and just have a little bit more just uh, freedom and flexibility to follow the Spirit. And so it's a lot of fun. And then that led right into our Freedom Conference Friday and Saturday. How many of you were at our Freedom Conference this weekend? So it's like, okay, so we had a few people in here. Last service, we had a few people. Freedom Conference, I would highly encourage everyone to consider jumping into a Freedom Group uh, when fall freedom, life groups kick off. Freedom Group is a, it's amazing uh, 12-week course that just walks you through what it means to have freedom and liberty uh, in the, in, as a child of God and your true identity in Him. And then it, it cultivates with this, uh, or culminates with this amazing conference that we do. And people will walk in, they'll say, I don't really know about you know, this. And then every time they're, they're leaving, they're saying, that was so powerful. I didn't think I was going to get anything out of it, but God met me. And, and did something amazing in my life. So consider that. Uh, but that was all this past week. That was one week at Life Church. So it's, a, it's fun. It's never a dull, dull week here. But we also are expository in our preaching. So that means we go right through God's word and we'll have a few Sundays where we, where we don't, uh, where we jump off of that. Like last week, we had Scott Hagen from North Central University. He spoke to us. It was a powerful word. But we've been in 2 Samuel for uh, this, this whole year. Last year, we were in 1 Samuel. So we've, get, we've got to see what God has done through the life of Samuel, through the faith of a woman like Hannah, Samuel's mother, through King Saul, and then now through David, and the prophet Nathan will be a player here in the next few chapters. And so it's really cool. So we just, we're so excited to dive into God's word and we want to tell you what God's word says. It doesn't matter what I say or Nathan or any other pastor on staff. It, it matters what does God say. And that's what we, that's our heart here. So we just take you to the word. And, and so we also want to give a big shout out to our online community. Can we give it up for our online community? Yeah. And if you're watching us, on WHMB or uh, on the podcast or wherever you're watching this, thank you for joining us today. So, all right, let me pray for us, and we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 4, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for just being a God who has spoken so clearly. He's given us, you've given us direction, and Lord, we ask that today that direction and that truth would just soak into our hearts, God. Let all the words from you just, just, uh, just be solidified into our spirits, Lord. Anything that's not of you, Lord, let it just fall by the wayside, and, and uh, Lord, we just ask that you just do what you want to do today here at Life Church. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so in chapter four of 2 Samuel, we're gonna see this idea of religious versus righteous. Okay, I, I want you to know something right now. Christianity is not a religion. I know people are saying, oh yeah, it's a religion. You're, you're, you're so much into religion, Micah. I, I'm not, I don't like religion. I'm about a relationship with my father. That is the difference between Christianity and all other faiths this world has to offer. All other faiths are religions, but this is the one where there is a relationship, a father-son or father-daughter relationship. What parent would ever consider their relationship with their child as religious or some, as doing something because you have to? That's not a good parent. I know there are parents out there that are like that, but that's not a good parent. Good parents say, no, no, no. This is not a, I do it because I have to. I do it because I love you. And I'm your parent. I, I'm going to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to, I want to do life with you. I love doing life with my kids and seeing them grow. It's just like brings me such great joy and, and just seeing their, their personalities develop. It's awesome. That's the same way it's supposed to be with our father in heaven. But unfortunately the spirit of religiosity has seeped into Christianity into our culture, into places where God never intended religion to be the final end all be all. And that's why you see the battles that Jesus fought while he was on this earth. A lot of times it was with the religious leaders. It was with the spirit, the demonic spirit of religiosity. And this chapter of second Samuel, we see that demonic spirit rear its ugly head once again, and it has deathly consequences for two men. But to give you a little bit of a, of a backstory here, we're going to dive in. We're going to see Saul's son, Ishbosheth. He's losing heart because his enti- the entire house of Saul is now dead. That's supposed to be now. I didn't catch that last service. It's not dead. Okay. No one came up to me after last service and said, hey, that was wrong. If you guys ever, if there's ever a misspelling, please tell me. Like, because in next service I can play it off. Like, oh yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect, right? No. So that should be now, is now dead. Okay. So. So the Saul's son, Saul's son Ishbosheth is ruling over the northern part of Israel. If you're, if you're new with us, let me give you a little bit of a kind of backstory of what's going on here. At the end of 1 Samuel, we see King Saul of Israel is killed by the Philistines and his son Jonathan, who would have been the next in line for the throne of the house of Saul, is also killed. However, David has been raised up by the Lord to be the new king because of Saul's disobedience, and we'll get into that. So basically the hand of God has come off of the house of Saul and has been now put onto the house of David. And all of Israel is starting to, starting to become clear that Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, who's trying to lead the north, the nation of Israel, is not going to, do, to win this. It's going to be Judah, where David is reigning right now at the capital of, of Hebron. And so they're, they're losing heart. So let's go to verse one. It says this, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. So remember, two weeks ago, when we, when we studied uh, the chapter before, chapter three, we saw that Abner was the commander of Ishbosheth's army. Abner knew that Ishbosheth was not really going to be the king for very much longer. He could see the writing on the wall. So what does he do? He goes to David. He says, David, I want to make a truce with you. David does not see these guys as his enemy. He sees them as brothers. They're all a part of the nation of Israel. He doesn't want to be at war with them. And so he makes, he makes a truce with, with Abner. And as Abner leaves, David's commander, who is Joab, finds out that Abner, 
Abner was there and he's now threatened because he's like, oh man, Abner is a powerful general too. I don't want Abner to be in the house of David. So Joab gets mad and goes out and kills Abner. So you see all these like these insecure leaders. This is really stemming from, and I talked about it. I preached over at the Fishers campus two weeks ago, but I talked about it from the, it, it was insecure leadership. You cannot be a good leader and, and, and be insecure in who you are. Good leaders come from the security that they have in their identity and, and who God says they are. And so we see all this insecurity is, is, is rearing its ugly head. But now Abner's dead. We also see that the, the house of Saul, um, we got Ishbosheth's three brothers, including Jonathan, his commander, Saul, they're all dead. Ishbosheth is looking around, he's like, there's no one left. And all of Israel knows this too. So they're saying, uh-oh, this is not good. Our nation is in decline. We are going to be, uh, we're going to be taken over pretty quickly here. So they lose courage. And then it goes on in verse two, it says, and Sam, well, I'm sorry, uh, let me go back real quick to, let me, where did this all start? Saul was anointed king back in 1 Samuel. God said to Saul, Saul, you're going to be king of Israel. But when did the house of Saul begin to go downhill? It was right here in 1 Samuel 15, 28. We look at this story that plays out where the Lord tells Saul to go in and destroy the Amalekites, to wipe them off the face of the earth, to get rid of them. And Saul says, okay, I'll go do it because God told me to do it. And he goes and he, he strikes down the Amalekites except for the king and he keeps all the good plunder, the sheep, the cattle, the goats, he keeps all the best for himself. And so we, we see here, we see that Samuel then comes to Saul and he says, Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you, from, uh, of Israel from you this day, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours. Because he walks in, and remember the story, he says, Saul, why do I hear goats? Why do I hear sheep? Why do I see the king of the Amalekites still alive? You were supposed to kill him at the Lord's command. And Saul thought he could do something, he could do it better. Now, people would look at this. I remember teaching that, that passage, and and it was, it's amazing how many people will look at the Old Testament and they'll look at God and they'll say, they'll say, God was such a mean God. He was so wrathful, like telling, telling Saul to go in and, and wipe out an entire people, the Amalekites, men, women, and children, cattle, goats, and everything. Wow, God is so mean. And I always say, yeah, yeah, he, he is if you're looking at it from the perspective of the terrorist. Yeah, he does. Like, remember the Amalekites were terrorists. Where did, where did God's, God's uh, anger burned towards the Amalekite people. Go all the way back to Egypt. Go all the way back to when God said, I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to pull them out of Egypt. And he does that with the man named Moses. And as they're walking out of Egypt, they have no army. There's no police force. They are totally defenseless. Do you know who they encounter? Amalek, the king of the Amalekites. Do you know what he does? He doesn't go up, he doesn't start attacking them from the front. He starts going at, at them from behind. And guess who's behind? Who's at the very end of these two million people walking through, through the children and feeble, the sick, the elderly, those who couldn't move very quickly. Now, let me ask a question as a parent. I know we've got a lot of parents in this room. If someone breaks into your house and is going to kill your kids, what are you going to do? Note to self, never break into Omar's house, okay? <laughs> Note to self. No, but that, but, and you know what, Omar? Some people would hear that and they would say, that is such an ungodly response. And I would say, no, that's the godly thing to do. And do you know why? 
You're not killing the person out of hate for that person. You're not hateful towards that person that's breaking into your house. You're doing it out of love for who's in your house. You're protecting those that you love. Well, if God is the good father, what do you think he's gonna do? When people start attacking his children, he's going to have an issue with that. And praise the Lord, guess what? He calls all of us to be his children. He, he, we all want, he's, he wants us all to be his children. So you, if you're not a child of God yet, good news, you can be one today. And you can then have a father who's going to protect you and defend you just the way he did with the Israelite people. You gotta see it from the perspective of God's perspective. Yes, I'm not going after the Amalekites because I hate the Amalekite people. I'm going after them because I love my, my children and they are, they've been terrorizing my children. Any good parent knows this. And so, so going back to the story here, Saul does not kill everything in the Amalekite nation. He leaves the king. And Samuel says, today the Lord has torn the kingdom from you, Saul, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. <laughs> Jeez, that's, that's a little mean. <laughs> he says, someone who's actually going to obey me and honor me Someone who has a heart after my own heart. 95% obedience is still disobedience to the Lord. And Saul found that out the hard way. And guess what? The house of Saul is now bearing the grunt of that decision that Saul made. Your decisions as parents and as people have ripple effects for generations to come. Jonathan was an amazing man. Loved God, loved David, knew that David was anointed king. But Jonathan was killed because of the stupid foolishness of his dad. That's the ripple effects that, that these ungodly decisions and disobedience will have. That should, that should strike fear into all of our hearts. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we want to say, hey, I don't want to do anything that steps out of God's will because I know what this could cost me in the long run. And God loves you and he loves you enough to tell you the truth in a culture where we have to affirm everything. Oh, you better affirm me. If you love me, you'll affirm me. No, if I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. Right? If I love you, I'm going to say God's best is this. You're living over here. I want God's best for you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you. Because I wouldn't care if you walk into utter destruction. I wouldn't care. But I care enough to tell you. That's how God our Father is. He cares enough to tell us. And we need to listen to him. So now we come back to 2 Samuel. Ishbosheth is sitting on the throne. Everything about Ishbosheth leads to this idea that he is a weak man. I'm going to tell you right now, we have an epidemic in America of weak men. And nations with weak men cannot remain strong nations. There's a hundred year cycle. It's a, it's a, there was a book written about it. It's this beautiful cycle. It says this. It says hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. We are in the weak men stage in America. The hard times was world with the depression in World War II Men that rose up and said, we're going to fight with everything we got because we love the people we're fighting for. We're going to go and we're going to fight fascism. We're going to fight the Nazis. We're going, to fight, we're going to fight against this wickedness that's trying to take over the world. And many people lost their lives, but they were strong men. That birthed the greatest industrial revolution, this industrial boom that we've ever seen in the world. From 1947 to today, we've never seen a nation become as more prosperous and more influential in world history in that short amount of time as the United States has been. It was because strong men stood up and did what God was calling them to do. 
But now those good times have created weak men and weak men are leading us into another season of hard times. And that's exactly where Israel is at right now. The northern part of Israel or the northern part of the kingdom, Israel, is being led by a weak man and everyone's starting to realize that and that's why they're losing courage. Ishbosheth means man of shame. Verse two, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Baana. We're just gonna call him Banana because that's easier. So, <laughs> all right, so it's Baana, that's how you say it. And the name of the other was Rechab, son of Ramon. Okay, so these were two, these, these guys were two raiders, okay? But they're, but they're in Ishbosheth's command. And they were men of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. Beeroth is, a, is, a, is a, about eight miles north of, of Jerusalem. It's, it's considered part of the, the tribe of Benjamin. Um, the Beerothites fled to uh, Gideon and have been sojourners there to this day. So the reason the author is letting you know this is because Saul himself was a Benjamite. So the house of Saul, the most loyal tribe of of the house of Saul would have been the, house of the tribe of Benjamin. They would have been the ones that probably would have said, no, we want the house of Saul all day long. And no matter what, we're gonna go down with this ship if we have to, but we're standing with the house of Saul. But the author is saying these two men, Baana and Rechab, they were being Benjamite defectors. And again, it goes back to verse one. The whole nation of Israel is losing heart because they're being led by a weak and feckless leader named Ishbosheth. Ultimately, though, if you're looking into the spiritual realm, it's really because the hand of the Lord was pulled off of the house of Saul. Even if Ishbosheth was a strong leader, it wouldn't have mattered. God had already given the kingdom over to David. Verse 4 Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Okay, so now what the author's doing here, he's pointing back to a, a side story. He's letting you know kind of where everybody in the house of Saul is at right now. And there was Jonathan, remember Jonathan had a great relationship with David and David and Jonathan were, they, they were best friends. And we, we see that David had such a love for his friend, Jonathan. And so, so this is going to play out in a few more chapters here about who this son is, but the son's name was Mephibosheth and his nurse took him up and fled when he was five years old. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame and, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, what this, what this the side story is, when Saul and Jonathan were killed on, on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines, news comes back to the, king, the king's house. It says, the king is dead. Well, what that does is that strikes fear into everyone in the king's family because whenever a nation loses its leadership, the nation's new leadership comes in and typically in that, in that period would destroy the whole house of the previous king probably keeping a few of the wives to just kind of, you know, dominate them and to say, hey, you're our slaves now, you're our slave servants, just to point it out like, hey, you are, you are under our rule. And so when the nurse found out about this, she picked up Mephibosheth and she ran with him, but she fell and she dropped him. He became crippled. So the author's letting us know that Mephibosheth could never become or even be seen as a potential heir to the throne of Israel. He's basically saying, Ishbosheth, it's it. It's, there's no one else. It's, it's him, and once he's gone, it's over. Because even Mephibosheth, he can't rule because he's crippled. Why does that matter? Because in those days, the kings would have to go out to battle with, and lead their armies in the battle. As a cripple, you wouldn't be able to do that. So he's automatically disqualified. 
You know, a lot of times people think, well, it'd be good to be the king. Be awesome to be, uh, be, to be the president, to be the leader of an organization. But what the house of Saul, especially Ishbosheth, is feeling in this moment, he's feeling leadership is a lonely place to be. Everyone around me's gone. I have no one to defend me. It's all going poorly, and I'm going to be the guy that's taken out because of it. I've experienced that a little bit this week, uh, just with being on the Hamilton County Library Board. <laughs> you guys are laughing. <laughs> 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 Again, thank you, Omar. Uh, appreciate you. So uh, I know I got, I know I, I, I'm not lonely. I don't feel like it's a lonely place to be because I got you guys. But I, I do know there are people who are fighting the good fight on that board with me that do feel lonely. They don't have a community like this that's rallying behind them. They don't have a community that say, hey, we know God's word says this. You're doing this. Get out there and get them. It's, I, I feel great. I've, I got you guys, right? But some people... You've got to find, as, a, as, as the, the followers of Jesus, you've got to identify those leaders in your life. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your government. Maybe it's in school, wherever it is. And you need to send them encouraging words. You say, hey, thanks for what you're doing. You probably don't get it enough. You probably get all of the negative stuff. And so one of the things I did on, on the notes, I actually put the emails of the, uh, of the board members for the Hamilton County Library Board and the Noblesville School Board to say, hey, you guys can reach out and encourage them. Say, thanks for standing up and protecting children from content that is totally inappropriate for minors. Like, we love what you're doing. Like, like continue to do it. Because I'm telling you, they hear it from the other side a lot more. And, and that, that's kind of indicative of our, of our nature as, as just good people. And I think, I think believers, too. It's like, we're, we're peace seekers. We like to seek peace. Making, making waves is not necessarily like, you know, we, we, we see the good in people, I think, primarily. We don't necessarily want to go out and, and be, you know, warriors and fighting in war every, every day. I told one lady who, she's on the other side of the issue, but we've had some good conversations uh, via messenger back and forth. And, and you know, she, she's respectful. I'm respectful to her. And, and, uh, and she said, you know, it's just, we can't be so divisive all the time. And I told her, I said, I said her name's Mary. I said, Mary. I said, I, I actually, maybe this may be, you know, something you're not expecting me to hear, but I'm not wanting to be in constant war all the time. I, I value peace. I love the emblem of the United States seal. It's the bald eagle in its right, talon, in its right talons. It's got a cluster of olive branches. And in its left, left talons, it has a cluster of arrows. Do you know which way its head is turned towards? The olive branches. It symbolizes that we want to be a people of peace. We're not, we don't want to just be warmongers looking for a battle every, behind every rock. We'd much rather be people of peace. But when necessary to make peace, we will go to war with evil if we have to. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be children of God. It doesn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are anti-conflict. I mean, look at the UN. UN peacekeepers, right? They're not really good at what they do. <laughs> like, Hey, we sent in the UN peacekeepers. Oh, that means the whole nation is about ready to crumble. So like, yeah, there's, that means the civil war is going to break out and nothing's going to be done about it, right? But God says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. Why? Because God's a warrior and he goes to war with evil. And once evil's destroyed, guess what happens? Peace is made. That's how you make peace. And so, so when you see those, those godly men and women fighting the battle, Make a point to reach out to them and say, hey, thank you for being a peacemaker. I know you're standing up for truth. Thank you for what you're doing. Now we go back to Mephibosheth, and it means shameful breath. 
Okay, so we're going, we're seeing, this, so the author's letting us know that his name means shameful breath. Probably doesn't mean he has bad breath. What it probably means is that he is an asthmatic. Now, if you've ever had a five-year-old or a six-year-old, you know they're a lot faster than most nurses, okay? <laughs> like, like, I have a five-year-old. I don't know too many, like, adults that can keep up with him when he's running. So this, you know, five, six years old, they're fast. Why would she pick him up and run with him when she got word that Saul died? Most likely because he was an asthmatic and he couldn't, his lungs couldn't support that type of, you know, just uh, energy and exertion of energy. So that's probably what was going on here. So again, the author is just basically pointing out Ishbosheth is the last one. Mephibosheth, yes, he's still alive, but he's a, he's a, he's a moot point. We will see Mephibosheth back in, in chapter nine or later in chapter nine, and David's going to bless him because of his relationship with Jonathan. That's the heart of David that I love. He doesn't see him as an enemy. He sees him as someone he gets to bless. So now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab, and B- Banana, Baana, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth, and as he was taking his noonday rest, and they came into the midst of the houses to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. Now the author, what he's going to do now, he's going to tell us that story again from a different perspective. He's putting more emphasis on the story. He says, and they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom. So he was, he was asleep. They struck him in and put him to death and they beheaded him. Eesh. Okay, so, so here you have these raiders. Again, these Benjamite defectors going into the king's, King Ishbosheth. They killed him. They cut off his head. And they took his head and they went by the way of uh, Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Okay, so we see all of this is playing up to David now. They come in and they said to King David, Here you go, king, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. I highlighted this because never once did David ever call Ishbosheth his enemy. Even though they were at odds and it was a civil war, David never saw Ishbosheth as the enemy. And then they say this, they take it a step further. The Lord has, the Lord has. That's the religious spirit playing out right there. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the King this day on Saul and on his offspring. The sons of Ramon thought their religious act was also a righteous act. And they were, they're going to find out very quickly how wrong they were. You know, the spirit of religiosity is a really dangerous demonic spirit. There, you have to understand, in, in the world of, of angels and demons, like the angels, remember, God created all of them. Angels, demons were once angels that were in the presence of God. They had different duties and different responsibilities and different strengths and different weaknesses. You see, you see all all throughout scripture, angels have different purposes. Michael, the archangel, a, archangel is a warrior angel. The dude's probably massively just, just ripped out of his gourd. You know what I mean? Like Pastor Nathan arms, but like bigger. You know what I mean? So uh, <laughs> every time you see Pastor Nathan, he's re- I'm like, dude, you got to chill. Okay. Everyone knows. All right. You got big arms. Like, okay, just t- start doing some cardio. Okay, buddy. All right. So... Uh, <laughs> And so, uh, so anyway, so Michael, the archangel, is, is this, you know, just massive warrior angel. Then you have angels that you see flying around the throne room of heaven. 
with two wings to cover their, uh, their faces, two wings to cover their feet, and two wings to fly. And all they do is sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Day and night they sing. You see angels created. Then you see messenger angels that bring messages. You see the one in, you see the one in, uh, in, in, the, in the book of Daniel where God gives Daniel a revelation about what's going to happen in the end times. And Daniel says, I don't know what this means. And he prays. He says, Lord, send me the interpretation of this prophetic word. The moment he prays, the Lord sends a messenger angel to bring David, or I'm sorry, Daniel, the, the, the interpretation. But what happens is this messenger angel meets the demonic, meets the prince of Persia or the devil in the air. He's coming from heaven to earth. And on the way there, the devil stops him and he's fighting this demonic stronghold. And Daniel still, he doesn't know this is going on. He's just praying. He fasts and prays for 21 days. And then, then the Bible says that after 21 days, the Lord sends Michael, the archangel, into the battle. He beats back the prince of Persia. It frees the messenger angel to go bring the interpretation of what that meant. And now we have this awesome look at what the end times is going to bring because Daniel was praying and fasting and because angels were fighting in the supernatural. It's awesome. I mean, this is like, this is like Marvel comics times a hundred million. You know what I mean? Like this is like epic battles where you're like good versus evil. But I'm telling you this because I want you to know the religious spirit is a demonic spirit. If you were to see it manifest itself right now, it would probably not scare you a ton. It would actually probably be like a little weaselly looking troll thing that you could probably just want to, you'd want to pick it up and punt it like a football. You know what I mean? Like, get out of here, you stupid little thing. You know what I mean? Like, in the name of Jesus, be gone. Okay, good. We're good, right? The spirit of suicide, the spirit of anxiety, the spirit of depression, I believe those were once mighty warrior angels who have now fallen and become demonic angels that overtake their victims by force. You can see them, you can know they're there all day long. It doesn't really matter. They're going to they're gonna overpower you. That's how they do their, their job. But I would argue that out of those two types of demonic spirits, the spirit of religiousness is far more deadly to us as believers than the spirit of suicide, depression, or anxiety. Because you can feel the spirit of suicide, depression, and anxiety coming into your house. You, you know what to do if you're a believer walking with Jesus. Okay, let's go to battle. In the name of Jesus, get out of my house. In the name of Jesus, you're not welcome here. I know you're here. Get out. Well, you start fighting that thing with the name of Jesus, it's going to eventually lead to your victory every single time. You just have to stay at it, and it will flee. Resist the devil, and he will flee, is what Scripture says. So you know it's there. The problem is with the spirit of religiousness, you don't know it's there until you're dead. That's how dangerous this thing is. And I see it in churches all across America. They think they're doing religious acts or they think the religious acts are righteous acts and they aren't. And these two guys, Baana and Rechab, are doing the exact same thing. They come in saying, I want to honor God. I want to do what's right. And we're going to do this religious act and we're going to give it over to David. And we're now going to be celebrated as guys who are godly and mighty in the kingdom. Boy, were they wrong. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon at the Berethite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. So first and foremost, David puts them in the rightful spices. You guys don't give me the kingdom. The Lord is my provider and the Lord is my protector. I've never once sought after the promise of God to be fulfilled. Not once have I ever tried to make it fulfilled. That's God's doing. I could have removed Saul myself. 
How many times did I have the opportunity to kill Saul, but I didn't do it because it's not mine to do. And you guys are coming into my house with the head of Ishbosheth thinking you did something good. Are you kidding me right now? You don't even know who this God is that we follow and serve. How often do we as individuals try to fulfill God's promises for him? He gives you a promise and he gives me a promise. He says, okay, great. Now I got to go out and make it happen. David shows us the example of what to do. We have to wait upon the Lord. We have to wait for him to fulfill. He will direct our steps every day to say, Lord, it's your promise, not mine. I'm just going to trust that you're going to fulfill it in your time. And you have to let him direct your steps. There's a great story in scripture of someone who took God's promise into his own hands. And he was an amazing godly man. His name was Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, when they were in their 90s, the Lord comes to them and says, hey, I'm going to give you a, a son who's going to be the father of many descendants. You will have so many descendants that the stars in the sky won't even be able to keep up. The sand on the shore won't even be able to keep up with how many descendants you have. At the time, they had, didn't have one, and Sarah was barren. And so they, they get this awesome promise from the Lord. And then the Lord leaves, and then time starts to pass, and the promise isn't being fulfilled. And all of a sudden, they start to say, I wonder what we can do to fulfill God's promise. So Sarah comes, novel, you know, great idea. Sarah comes to Abraham, I know what you can do, sleep with my friend. <laughs> sleep with my maidservant, right? Her name's Hagar. I, again, I'm just like, okay, could no one have said this is a bad idea? Like, you see that one coming, right? But this is what they do. They, Abraham sleeps with Hagar. Guess what happens? Hagar bears a son. Do you know what the son's name was? Ishmael. Do you know who he was? The father of the Islamic nation. If Abraham, think about this. If Abraham would have just waited on God to fulfill the promise, we wouldn't even know what Islam is today. Isn't that amazing? And now God loved Ishmael. God was very clear. He's like, I, I will bless you, Ishmael. You will be the father of many nations, but or many descendants, but those descendants will be a thorn in the flesh to the whole entire world. And look what's happened, even, even in America, 9-11, was the result of Abraham trying to fulfill God's promise and not just waiting. We wouldn't have had 9-11 if Abraham just would have waited. Isn't that an amazing thought? And I'm not saying that to, down, to put down Abraham, because guess what? We do the same exact thing every day. Oh God, I, I, I do want to trust you, but I probably have to do something to fulfill your promises. That's, that's human nature. And yet God still works through it all. He still, he still makes it good. All those things, he'll work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. But David recognizes he is not the fulfillment of the promise, nor are the sons of Ramon. And he goes on, he says, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Remember, the Amalekite tried this when Saul and Jonathan died. When Saul and jo Jonathan died on Geboa, the Amalekite came to him and said, hey, guess what? I'm the one who actually killed Saul and Jonathan, David, thinking that he was going to get a reward for that news. And David said, how could you ever reach out your hand and strike down God's anointed. And he put that Amalekite to death. And so at this point, I think banana and Republic, uh, or Rikab, or <laughs> Banunch, okay. Dad jokes, come on, that sounds funny. 
it just literally, it came to me just that moment right there. I did not, I did not plan that for real. So that's the second service, you know, first service didn't get that. So, and who knows what's going to happen in third service. So, uh, yeah, you're welcome. All right. So he, these guys have to be freaking out right now when he's saying this, like, uh uh-oh, maybe our act was not a good act. David never sought to fulfill the promise, but he waited on God to bring the promise to him. Verse 11, he says, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Okay, so he's saying, you guys are the wicked ones here. Ishbosheth was the righteous one. And by the way, don't act like you're some warriors. You killed him while he was sleeping. This wasn't even a fair fight. You, th- you want me to bless you and honor you for this when you literally killed a guy laying on his bed? Ooh, you guys are real strong guys, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, now I'm going to require your blood because you have done something so wicked. And David commanded his young men and they killed them and they cut off their hands and feet and ha- hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. <laughs> that's, that's pretty intense right there. That, and I, but I want you to recognize David was making a huge statement when he did this. When he did this, he, he was letting the nation of Israel know this was absolutely unacceptable. And he was saying, these are not our enemies. Ishbosheth is not our enemies. Judah, don't look at Israel as the enemy. Israel, don't look at Judah as the enemy. And the guys who thought they were doing something to destroy the enemy, I destroyed them and I made an example out of them. Know that I am not seeking your, your destruction. And then he took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David's execution was just, a, it was not only carrying out God's justice, but it was a great political move. He was letting all of Israel know, hey, this was not my doing. Because if he wouldn't have done that to Baana and Rechab, the nation of Israel, who was already losing courage, was like, uh-oh, David's just like every other king that conquers a nation. He's coming in, he's gonna destroy us all. And David was making points like, no, we're done. I don't want this. I want unity. And I love that David's heart is a heart of unity. He's a righteous man, and David sees Ishbosheth as a righteous man, but David is saying, we need to unify around what God says. Now, I know people are gonna tell you all day long, hey, you're really divisive. You're a divisive person. Stop being so divisive. Well, yes, if you're unifying around lies, if they're unified with lies and you're unified with truth, truth is always gonna look divisive to the lies. But we need to be people that say, no, we want unity, but we're gonna make sure we unify around what God says. And that's David's heart in this whole thing. David is saying, I want to unify around what God says. And God says he wants the whole nation of Israel to be under the kingdom, not just north and south. And the other thing that stood out to me in this whole message was David never played the victim card. Even though it would have been very easy for him to do. Remember, this is 15 years. David's been on the run from Saul. And then he had another seven years of reigning in Judah as the king of Judah, but not over Israel fighting the house of Saul. David could have very easily said, I am the victim here. Everyone needs to be woe is me and give me my, my just rewards because boy, I've had it really hard. I had to run into the mountains of Angedi. I had to, I, our, our, our families got, got kidnapped by the Amalekite raiders when we were running from Saul because we weren't there to defend them. That was, that was the lowest point of our whole thing. And, and, and boy, we had to go through such pain and 
Praise God, he brought our families back to us safely, but still that moment was just incredibly scary and PTSD and everything coming from that. David could have easily said that. I'm sure it was very hard for David, but he never played the victim card. Anytime David was victimized, and he was victimized a lot, you know what he did? He got down on his knees, he ran to the Lord, he wrote incredible songs of worship. We know them as the book of Psalms. It's like, Lord, there are people trying to kill me. There are people that want me dead today. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I haven't done anything. You know my heart, God, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. And if there is, blot it out. But you know my heart, I'm not who they say I am. And I could go out there and I could, I could yell it at the rooftop saying, no, no, I'm not that guy. But Lord, you are my defender. You are the one that can fight my battles for me. Is that you today? Do you feel like you, you've constantly been trying to fight your battles and you're not getting anywhere? I'm gonna say, give it over to the Lord. He's a much better warrior than you are or I am. He can fight and when he fights, he wins every time. Well, I think it also points out, and as I call down the prayer team here, it also points out that David had a tremendous ability to see every circumstance from heaven's perspective. Now, it doesn't mean he was perfect. There are times we'll see it. He starts to lose heaven's perspective. But David could look at this instance with Ishbosheth, and he could say, All right, Lord, give me your eyes to see what's going on here. Is this really my enemy? And the Lord said, no, it's not your enemy. These are your brothers and your sisters. You know, when I'm taking shots in the media or on social media or whatnot from people, so I've had, I've had people come up to me and say, Micah, how do you like stay so joy-filled about that? How do you, how, it doesn't seem like it bothers you a whole lot. And to be honest with you, it really doesn't bother me a whole lot. But do you know what the secret is? A few years ago, when I was getting into to this battle that, that we're in as a culture and as a nation. And the Lord said, Micah, as you enter into this battlefield, don't you ever stop seeing through my eyes. See the people, every person you meet, see them through my eyes. Every circumstance, see it through my eyes. Now, again, I'm not perfect. I don't see every circumstance the way that God sees it, but I think I'm getting better at it. And so when someone is screaming at you, saying this about you or that about you or, or throwing lies and insults at you, you know what? Every time the Lord has just said, Micah, do I hate them? The person saying that? I said, no, you don't hate them. He says, no, nor should you. He says, Micah, do you know what I hate? I said, no, what do you hate? And he says, I hate the lies that they have bought into. And he says, do you know where those lies come from? That's a pretty easy one for me. I just said, yeah, from the pits of hell. He said, exactly. Hate the lies and those where the lies originates from. Hate that. Don't hate the person. And so when you start to see things from heaven's perspective, it just makes life so joy-filled because you remember, so this isn't my battle. This is Jesus's battle and he's already won. I just get to walk into, the, into victory. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're saying, Pastor Mike, I, I just need help seeing things from heaven's perspective. Well, as we go into this last song, I just encourage you to come down as we're singing, 
about the same God who was the God of David, the God of Mary, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God is the God today that we are calling on. Say, God, I need you to help me see from your perspective and let people pray over you. There's power in prayer. James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And you know what? We're righteous when we have the blood of Jesus covering us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.